0: So as we begin this morning, um, we've got a lot of ground to cover. I had a real hard time separating this passage out into the sections that it should have been in. Um, I don't know. I know we we worked through chapter 2, verse 16 last week, which left us verse 17 of chapter 2. So we're definitely starting there, and how I, I did 6 verses, I did 12 verses, I did 15 verses, I did 18 verses, and nothing really just lined up. So we're going to do chapter 2, verse 17, and all the way through chapter 3, which is 18 verses. So it's not a ton of material, but there's a lot here this morning, um, because I just could not separate it out any other way that made sense to me, and I checked every outline and every preacher that preached anything on Malachi to try to figure this out and they were all over the map and most people preach on a 30 minute schedule well not us right we've got an hour you're like yeah I know right but so we can cover more ground and and I, what, what really jumped out to me about this uh, separation is that from 217 to 318 there is a consistent theme and there's a little parenthesis in there so What we're going to do as we read this morning publicly, we're going to read 2.17 to 3.18. But let me explain how we're going to break this down real quick. So 2.17, I'm going to combine with 3.13 through 18. So that's going to leave us the section of um, the way it breaks down here, just so you know. Because we're going to jump around a little bit. We're going to do verses... Uh, chapter 3 verses 1 through something and then, uh, then 3 1 through something. Then we're going to jump back up and do 217 with 3, 13 through 18. Just so you know that. Because it's it's a little bit confusing. And it's the best I could do, y'all. This is uh this is a lot of stuff. So if you would stand, we're gonna read the entire passage together. And I in no way want to apologize for God. But the tone of this book is really hard. I mean, it's really, really hard. And I don't know about you all, but I just feel like pulp. After I wrestle with this for a week at a time, I'm going, man, oh man. And I would want to remind you, and I'll remind you in the message as well, what was the first thing God said to these people? He says, I have loved you. So keep in mind that the discipline of God is for our good. The discipline of God is a sign of His love for us. Keep that in mind as we read today the very words of God from Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 through 3.18. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and He delights in them. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day that I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. Let's pray. God, you are faithful, and you do not change. Therefore, we are not consumed. God, if left to ourselves, we would destroy ourselves. If left to ourselves, we would abandon you, but you do not change. So we are not consumed and we do not fall away. And we are here today by your grace and ask that by the power, the very power of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would convict and draw us, heal us, break us if need be, so that you can put us back together in the image of your Son. We ask for your help and expect it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know whose tone is harsher here, God's or the people's. And I think there is a reaction, a response and a reaction that's going back and forth. If you've been with us through these messages, there's been God saying, you have done this, and consistently these people said, how have we done that? And we see that all through this passage. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 5. That's where we're going to start. Like I said, will come back to 2.17 at the end. So let's start with 3, 1 through 5. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Wow. What is going on here? Where do we need to start here? There's a lot going on. So he says here, let's keep in mind so far in this book, God said from the very beginning, like I said at the beginning, that he has loved Israel with an unconditional, electing, irrevocable love. I said, how have you loved us? He said, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. That's how I've loved you. I've destroyed them and I've preserved you. That's how I've loved you. After that, he proceeds to point out their failures and their lazy worship and his disdain for it all. He's leveled so much of what we've seen toward the priests and Levites who were not teaching and passing down the faith in a proper way, but instead were wearied and bored with their work. Remember that? Such a burden to do this, they would say. And then last week, we saw God speak against the sins of the people, especially them marrying foreign women and also for divorcing in their proper marriages like it was no big deal. God tells them explicitly that He wanted them joined in legitimate, pure worship unions so that they could produce godly offspring who will continue to pursue Him in their life and worship. He even said, a portion of my spirit I put in their union. And then He calls them to be faithful, not faithless. That's where we've been so far. And now, here, starting in chapter 3, we see God announcing his plans to refine and judge his people when he comes to Israel at some point in the future. Now, listen, this is super duper imperative that you understand what's going on here. Okay? See, there was something missing in the temple worship of these Jews who had returned from exile. They had returned from exile, they had built the temple. They had built the wall, and now they're living in not-so-great surroundings in the Persian-run vassal state of Judah. They were in their homeland, but they were slaves. They said that at the end of Nehemiah. Look at, look at us, we're slaves. And what was missing in what they were doing, yes, they had people, they had the land, they had the temple, but what was missing? What was missing was the very glory of God. When Solomon built the original temple, probably several hundred, maybe a thousand years before this, the glory of God filled that temple in a visible, tangible way. Let me read real quick Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. This is Solomon dedicating the original temple. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house." When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So get that picture in your head. Fire from heaven. Glory, visible, tangible glory to the point that the priest couldn't even go in. So there was visible, tangible evidence that God was there in that temple. Now did that always stay there? Their awareness of the glory of God in the temple was such that they would not, well they were commanded not to go into the Holy of Holies except for once a year and that was one person, the high priest who made that one sacrifice that one time a year. Nobody else dared venture into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was because that's where God sat and they knew it. So they knew God was there, but later many years later in Ezekiel chapters eight through 11 it's clearly shown we don't have time to read that but it's clearly shown in Ezekiel chapters eight through 11 it's shown to Ezekiel and he says that the glory of God God departs that temple before its final destruction by the Babylonians you'll have to read that for yourself let me give you a little background there Ezekiel had been taken captive in the first wave of captives when the Babylonians invaded Judah in 597 BC. Now while he's in exile, while Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon, he begins sharing God's messages to the captives in Babylon about what God is doing and what God is doing to the Jews back in Judah because there's still Jews there. There's still The Babylonians have set up a king and so there's still a nation of Israel, but in a little while the Babylonians are going to come back and they're going to wipe it all out. So... In this meantime, after Ezekiel is taken into captivity and Judah is still a nation, Ezekiel is saying, This is what God is doing. So while he is in Babylon, he gets a vision of the glory of God departing from the temple. Now imagine being the, the, the heralding of that message. You come back to the Jews and you say, They're saying, What's God saying? And he said, I saw a vision clearly of the glory of God leaving the temple. Well, that would have been a huge deal to them. Well, maybe you were wrong. And he's like, no, I wasn't wrong. I saw it clearly. God said clearly, I'm gone. And the glory was gone. And you can see that again in Ezekiel 8-11. through And this news would have been devastating for the Jews in Babylon because they were hoping for deliverance. They were hoping that they would be back in Jerusalem pretty soon. But then in 586 B.C., about 11 years later, Nebuchadnezzar would storm through Jerusalem and utterly destroy the temple and carry out the last captives from Judah and Jerusalem, which would leave the land of Israel without the people of God, without the temple of God, and without the glory of God. And it was the return of these people, this temple, and mostly this glory that the Jews were longing for. So here they are now, the people of God, in the land of God, with the temple of God, and no glory of God. And as they slog through their daily lives here in Malachi, they slog through lazily, if at all, worshiping God. And they neither sense nor see the glory that was so integral to their national existence. And they're tired They're tired of missing this glory. They're tired of having never seen it themselves. And they're tired of missing the blessings that come with this glory. So now here God says that the glory is returning. But what will that be like? Well first, God says he will send his messenger to prepare the way before him. He said, I'll send my messenger. Now if you remember, the name Malachi literally means my messenger. So Malachi comes bringing a message saying God says he's going to send My messenger. And they're going, Malachi, that's you. You're my messenger. Like, that's your name, dude. That's you. So they're like, maybe God's referring to Malachi here. Is Malachi preparing the people for the return of God in his glory? Now, while Malachi was speaking to the people of God about the return of the Lord, we can see from history that he was not referring to himself in this role here. In that time, a king would send messengers ahead of him on a journey. Who were basically tasked with literally clearing the road ahead of the king? They would go before the king when he was coming into town. They would remove stones and other obstacles in the path and force anyone on the path to move to the side of the road so that the king's travels would be unimpeded. So he says, a messenger's coming to prepare the way for the king. So who would he be referring to here? Now, while some distant, uh, I'm sorry, while some dissent, and let me say this. When you look at biblical prophecy, there is generally an immediate fulfillment, a partial fulfillment in the future, and a final fulfillment. So what Malachi is saying to these people was relevant for the people at the time, but they were seeing the closest thing to them. They couldn't see the other mountain peaks. That's how some people refer to it. There's different mountain peaks to the prophecy. So they're looking and saying, are you preparing the way?" And he was to a point. But ultimately this message this messenger that was coming to prepare the way for the Lord to come was John the Baptist right let me tell you why that's so i 'll give you biblical proof mark two i'm sorry mark one verses two through four as it is written in Isaiah the prophet behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his path straight and then John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it appears that Mark is clearly referring to John the Baptist as the messenger that Malachi was referring to. And if that's so, who would the me and the I and the Lord be referring to that John was preparing the way before? Go to your, go, go to, go to your Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus. Thank you very much. All right? Jesus. God is saying, I'm coming. And I'm coming as Jesus. So read, read it again in light of that, chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. I, God, send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, God. And the Lord, Jesus, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And is that not exactly what happened? John prepared the way and Jesus came and walked and talked and taught in the temple. Now the temple that Jesus taught in would have been Herod's temple which they said took over 46 years to build on the site where this sad little temple was built that the exiles had built. And Jesus showed up suddenly. First as a little baby when they dedicated him in the temple. And then as a 12 year old sitting with the old guys talking about things, and then there's a 30-year-old man who comes flipping over tables. came suddenly. And he came so suddenly that many, many, many of them missed him. He had told them 400 years before, I'm coming, I'm coming, and a messenger's going to prepare the way for me, and I'm going to show up in the temple all of a sudden. And he did, and they missed him. Now what was He doing? What was Jesus doing? He was doing exactly what Malachi said He would do. Look at Malachi 3, 2-3. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now first of all, Jesus' coming was not what they thought it would be. And this is kind of the theme of this whole passage today. They missed the point. And they're going to miss the point all through this passage. They assumed that Jesus would bring blessing and freedom and an earthly kingdom restored to the Jews. But God says, who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? Now this implies that Jesus is coming, God's coming, the Lord's coming, which is all the same thing. When He comes, it's not going to be all rainbows and unicorns and cotton candy and festival. But rather... He was coming, Jesus was, into, in His kingly glory that was veiled. So He wasn't coming in His full kingly glory. And He wasn't coming to bless the Jewish nation and restore it to prominence, but rather He was coming to purchase His people for Himself. And it was going to be a brutal spiritual battle, not an earthly war. He would come and be a discerner of thoughts and hearts, skewering the religious elite and calling sinners to repentance. No one Jesus came into contact with was unaffected. They were either convicted and converted or hardened and unrepentant. Now what made the difference? Look what he was going to do. For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now... The end there is for future fulfillment. One day the sons of Levi, literally, will bring offerings and they'll be pleasing. So that's, again, there's that far peak that even we can barely see right now. But he was also doing something in the moment and he's still doing something today. And the main thrust here is that he's coming as a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. Now what do these things do? They remove impurities. A refiner's fire removes impurities. Fuller's soap removes dirt. The refiner's fire does not burn the silver or gold. It just heats it to the point of separation of the alloys in it. Fuller's soap removes the dirt and grime from garments. Both processes are violent and drastic, but both are effective. And this is how Jesus would work when He came. And it's how Jesus will continue to work until He comes back again. Just like Jason said this morning, we know that He came before, so we know He's coming again. Verse 3 says, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. One commentator said this, referring to verse 3. This is awesome. The purifier sits before the crucible, fixing his eye on the metal, and taking care that the fire be not too hot, and keeping the metal in only until he knows the dross of to be completely removed by his seeing his own image reflected in the glowing mass. Woo! So the Lord, in the case of his elect, he sits and he turns up the heat until he burns away other affections, the sins that so easily beset us, until he can see himself in us. That's what he's doing. And it's a violent thing. It's a harsh thing, and it's for our good to get the impurities out of us. He will sit down to the work, not perfunctorily, but with patient love and unflinching justice. What a picture. Here is Jesus, the refiner and the purifier, sitting and looking for His reflection in His people. And who can abide it? The pure people of God can because they're refined by this fire. Refining fire purifies, it doesn't destroy. And what happens when the Lord's people are pure? Verse 4 says, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. After the Lord comes into His temple and purifies His people, then the offering of them will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And notice that it isn't stated that if this happens, but rather that it will happen. So God is coming in the form of Jesus to His temple and He's coming to purify a people for Himself. But will He purify everybody? No, He will not. He will judge those that are not His. Verse 5 said this, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear Me, says the Lord of hosts. So God says that He, in the form of the messenger of the covenant, which is what it says there in Malachi 3, who is coming quickly, He will purify His people, but He will also draw near for judgment. That judgment will be from God and will be swift against sorcerers, adulterers, false swearers. It will be swift against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, those who oppress the widow and the fatherless, those who who thrust aside the sojourner, and that judgment will be fierce against those who do not fear Him. The Lord of hosts will judge these people and His judgment will swiftly separate them from His people. So who can abide the day of His coming? Only those who He purifies. Now verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers... You have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you, sh- you say, how shall we return? We'll stop there for a second. So now, God comes back from forecasting these future events and He comes back to the sins of the people in the present, which is how the rest of the book has been set aside from the passage we read in 3, 1 through 5. Again, 3, 1 through 5 was kind of a parenthesis in what was going on. And now he's kind of resuming what he was saying before. And he tells them that it's because of his unchanging nature that the children of Jacob have not been consumed or utterly destroyed. Remember, he said he had loved them unconditionally and based on nothing but his free choice of them. Way back in chapter 1. And since he doesn't change, they haven't been destroyed. And that's the only reason. And in all truthfulness, they should have been cast off and destroyed. For, like verse 7 says, they have turned aside from his statutes and have not kept them since the days of their fathers. They've always been unfaithful, and his love for them has never changed. Breathe that in for a second. They have always been unfaithful, and his love for them has never changed. That's really good news. It's embarrassing sometimes hard to remember, hard to take sometimes, but it's fantastic news. You will always go astray and His love for you will never change. They've always been unfaithful and His love for them has never changed. So, He says they should return to Him and they reply with the common refrain, How shall we return? And what's God's answer? 8 through 12. Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then... All nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now that's interesting, isn't it? God says, return to me. They ask how, and he calls their attention to the tithe. Will a man rob God? Return to me. How shall we return to you? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? You can just see their eyes rolling and hear their annoyed tone, can't you? How have we robbed you? And God answers clearly and specifically by saying that they are robbing him in their tithes and contributions. They're not being faithful by giving worshipful attention to the prescribed tithes and offerings that they're supposed to be bringing to the temple to provide for the priests, the Levites, and the temple worship. So, since they're not doing that, God says they're cursed with a curse. Now let me clarify that with a little bit of what we saw last week. Is God cursing these people? Yes and no. Does God send a curse upon them? Yes, He does. Okay. He said way back in Deuteronomy, and we looked at this last week, that if they walk in disobedience, that curses would ensue and that He would be the one who sent the curses. And he said that these curses were from him. So here they're not obeying God and bringing their tithes and contributions, so they are cursed. But also remember that they had signed a covenant, a public solemn binding agreement back in Nehemiah, and their language was that if they broke the covenant, let them be accursed. So they're not doing one of the very things that they specifically said they would do in that covenant, and so they're cursed. So their curse is self-inflicted and God wrought. And God says it's the whole nation of them. But He tells them what to do instead. Look at this language. Verse 10. Let me go back to verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then... All nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So he says, pay your tithes, bring your offerings like you're supposed to do, like you said you would do, so that the temple of God is provided for. And then this, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Now that's strong language. God is saying, try me. See if I won't." and he's not saying, try me, and if you don't do this, I'm going to punch in the mouth. He says, try me. And see if I won't open the very windows of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. Wow. Are we a people who are trying God? God, you said you were going to bless me if I did this. I'm going to try you. I'm going to try. I'm going to give it a shot. And he doesn't just say he's going to bless them. He says, I'm going to bless you till there's no more need. I'm going to open the very windows of heaven and pour down such a blessing that you're not going to have any need. Are we that kind of people? Or are we hoping we just don't mess up in something doctrinally so that God gets mad at us? God doesn't blast them and threaten bad things, but instead challenges them and promises good things, blessings for them until there's no more need. He says their fields and vines will produce with no fear of failure or devouring and that the nations will see it. And isn't that the goal? That the nations will see it and call them blessed and they will be a land of delight and that He, the Lord of hosts, will see that it happens. Just try them. And now God will address one more thing to show that He is intimately involved in their day-to-day lives. Watch this. Now here's where we're going to read 2.17 and then 3.13-18. through 18. So I'm just going to read that together. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers do not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Hmm. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them... And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So to this point, God has addressed their need for a coming purifier. He said, I'm coming back. I'm bringing the glory back. He's addressed their failure in the matter of tithes and offerings, promising blessing if they will do what they're supposed to. And now He talks to them about their talking, their words. How are they talking? Two seventeen and 3, 13 through 15 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied Him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of your keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So a couple of things to point out here. It starts out with our familiar Malachi pattern of God says you've done something and you say, well, how have we done that? God says, you've wearied me with your words. And they say, how have we wearied him? And he says, they've done so by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where's the God of justice? First of all, note who they're talking to. They're not talking to God. They're talking about Him to each other. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. If I said, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of will, and He delights in them, am I talking to will? No. They're not talking to God. They're talking to each other about God. And as they speak to each other, They're mischaracterizing God by saying that God calls evil good and that He delights in evil and that He isn't present for justice. Where's the God of justice? Their conversation amongst themselves is that God is not who He says He is. They are basically saying God isn't with us, God isn't for us, and God is surely not who He has promoted Himself to be. Whew. And then in 3, 13 through 15, it gets a little more pointed. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They are told by God that their words are hard against Him. And they say, how have we spoken against you? It's almost like they don't know that God heard what they were saying. And God says, you say, it's vain to serve God. What do we get out of it? Why do we walk around mourning? It seems like the arrogant get blessed and evildoers prosper and they even test God and get away with it. Now again, they're not talking to God, but about Him. And they mischaracterize Him again and moan about how it seems useless to do the right thing. So why should we even bother? Why do what God says if those who don't do what God says get rewarded for it? He's saying, test me. Well, they're testing Him in a bad way. And they're getting away with it. And this is their normal day-to-day conversation. But they aren't the only ones talking. Let's finish verses 16 through 18 again. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. Now look, those who feared the Lord are talking to one another. What are they saying? Well, we don't know. Because they don't list their words. But we know that the Lord paid attention and heard them. And then it says that He wrote a book of remembrance of and for them so that they would be noted in His presence. He says they shall be His, these people who fear Him. And when He makes up His treasured possession, woo, they will be part of it. And then he will spare them like a man spares his son who serves him. Now note that sons serve their father in a way different than slaves or employees. And sons are spared differently than employees and slaves as well. And when God does this and blesses and preserves and spares them like sons, then there will be a clear, visible distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who don't. And what's the difference, he's saying here? What's different is what they're talking about. Their words make them different. You see, while others are whining, saying it seems useless to serve God, God is saying that those who serve Him will receive a reward. And it will be obvious to those who see it. They'll just have to wait to see it. And that's what the Israelites didn't want to do. They didn't want to wait until they saw the blessing of God. They didn't want to wait for the glory of God to return to His temple suddenly. And so they're walking around saying, what's the use? We're getting nothing out of this. Look at us. We're slaves. We're poor. Look at this wall. Yeah, we celebrated that wall, but look at it. Look at this temple. Look at these priests. What's the use? Nothing good's going to come out of this. And I don't have time to wait, God. You've got to act now. That's what's going on. That's a lot of stuff. So let's apply it. So we saw last week that the priests and Levites' sloppy lives and teachings were leading to blatant and easy to spot disobedience in the people of the nation in the form of intermarrying and divorce. Now, in our passage from today, God addresses some other specific sins that are prevalent in the culture at large. He talks about their talking, He talks about their money, and He talks about their wrong perspective of Him, of Him and His ways and purposes. So that's what we're going to apply. We've got it under three headings: speech, spending and specs, as in spectacles. OK? I was going to go with slant, but the SP just worked too well. So speech, spending, and specs. What they're saying, how they're spending their money, and how they're looking at what they're looking at through the spectacles that they got on, their perspective. So first speech. Whew, daggone it. Let's look at how we speak in light of what we've seen today. There are two camps mentioned in the passage today. Those whose speech wearied the Lord and those whose speech showed fear and honor for the Lord. Those who dishonored the Lord spoke about the Lord to each other in a way that was outward proof of a grumbling heart. Makes me think of those back in Exodus. It says grumbled in their tents against God and Moses. Again, they're in these tents and they think God can't hear them well, we're all out in the desert. It's scorpions and snakes and God doesn't like us at all. Now, they didn't dare confront God or Moses face to face, but they vented their spleen, to use a reference from Wednesday night, by the way. They vented their spleen at home. Husband to wife, wife to husband, mom and dad to the kids, neighbors over the back fence. But God shows us in Malachi 3 that he is there to hear what is being said in all of those conversations. He hears what they say and he is taking note of it and bringing it back up to them as if their conversations are being recorded. Because guess what? They are. And he says a similar thing about those who are fearing and honoring him, saying their words will be part of what shows their faithfulness and presents them as sons in the day of judgment. So here's the skinny. Your words show how you really feel about something. And not your church words, but your words at home. Your words at work. Your words everywhere you go. There really are no private conversations. God is privy to your conversation. Actually, He's directly involved in every word that proceeds from your mouth. Think about that. Jesus himself says that our words will be, the major, be a major component of our judgment. Did you hear what I just said? Jesus himself says that our words will be a major component of our judgment one day. Look at these sobering truths from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 12, 33-37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Wow! Somebody going shoot. Oh man. I hope that doesn't come up it's going to come up you say but I'm saved he's not going to bring it up for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned see what's really going on here this is not about what's actually being said it's about what's in here so how are your words how are your words at home How are your words in the car by yourself? You say, what are you talking about? I'm saying the words that are in here. What are your words when you're smiling fakely at somebody and you're thinking, I hate this person," Or you're texting somebody else about them while you're sitting smiling at them. Yeah, I hate this verse. How are your Twitter words, your Facebook words, your Instagram words, your text words? How are your words? This is incredibly convicting to me. What words are in your heart? Because what's in there is what will come out one way or the other. And listen to me every word matters. Every word matters. So the application is work on your words. By the power of the Holy Spirit of God, I'm not telling you to grab yourself by your bootstraps and do better and try harder. I'm saying bring your words to God and confess your words as sloppy and hateful and sinful when they are. And ask God to purify your heart so that your words will be right. Because that's what matters. Guard your heart and your conversations diligently. You folks that are studying James on Wednesday nights know that there's much that James has to say about the tongue, isn't there? We don't have time to go there this morning. But let's just say your words show your heart toward God and man. But not just your words, so does your money, our speech, and our spending. The Israelites had ceased faithfully bringing their tithes and offerings to the temple. And God said it was the whole nation of them. Now why do you think that happened? We know that times were tough from what we had seen in Nehemiah and that people were selling kids to pay taxes and they were selling lands and fields uh, to buy grain. So that could be one reason they had stopped bringing in the tithe. The priests and the Levites weren't being exactly faithful and productive with what was being brought. We've seen that they've been lazy and sloppy and you may bring them a, a, a nice, healthy, beautiful animal and they're sacrificing a lame, blind animal. So maybe they didn't want to fund them, these fake priests, in their apparent sloppy worship. Either way, the nation had robbed God by not giving what they had both been commanded to bring and what they said they would willingly bring. Listen, whew. their desire to protect their financial stability was trumping their desire to obey God. And how are we doing here? And we touched on this several weeks ago when we talked about the tithe in Nehemiah's time, and we said then that there's no t- New Testament commands the tithe. But let me ask you something: Should we do less as New Covenant believers than they were commanded to do in the Old Covenant? Do we have more or less revelation than they had? Do we have more or less of the Spirit of God? We've got more. The Holy Spirit didn't dwell in them. He dwells in us. Are we pre or post life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Post. They were pre. John Piper had a great message on this. I commend it to you. It's in Malachi chapter 3 on on Desiring God's website. And he said basically, we are called to a more radical obedience in light of all that we have and know. We are those who have been given so much more than the saints in the Old Testament had. They long to look into what we see. Angels long to look into what we've seen. And the need then was for the worship of one nation, whereas the call today is for all nations. Are we commanded to tithe? Nope. We are called to hilarious giving, not under compulsion, but as one proposes in his heart. Wow, that keeps coming up, doesn't it? It's where our words come from. It's where our giving comes from. That is so much higher than a prescribed number that was mandated by God who thundered from the fiery mountain. Now the Holy Spirit of God prods us from within and calls us to give now so that we can receive blessings later. Yes, give so that you might receive a blessing. But know that that blessing's coming later. The Israelites weren't re- willing to wait for their blessing. We are called to. And the other side of that coin, see what I did there? Coin. Is that this is for our joy. We've heard time and again that it's more blessed to give than to receive, and that's true. And we also need to hear again, like the Israelites in Malachi's day, that God rewards Givers. He said to try him and see if he wouldn't open the windows of heaven and pour out more blessings than they could hold. And now he says to us, try me. Y'all have heard this and I've, it's been in application point after application point, but I can't help but read it again. As far as giving, 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now before I move on, this is about money. This passage, this context is about giving financially, particularly to those who teach the Word. I'm not saying that as a commercial, but that's the context. It is about money. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The harvest we get out of our giving is our righteousness. I'm not saying you earn righteousness by what you give. That's the harvest that you reap when you sow financially into the life of the church, into the people of the church the harvest we get is our righteousness. We get to be enriched in every way. And why? So we can be generous in every way and that produces thanksgiving to God. That's a whole different perspective than I've got to take my money and put it in the box at church or God's going to be mad at me and if they don't see a check from me, they're going to know I'm not giving. This is a whole different ball game. It's a whole different perspective, which leads us to our last point our speech, our spending, and our specs. What lens are you looking through? What is your perspective of what's going on around you in your life right now? We're all in different places. What's your perspective of what you're going through today? The main problem in the passage today was the perspective of the people of God. They were looking for God's glory, for their good, in the moment, in the here and now, for them. They said it was useless to serve God and that the liars and cheats seemed to be the ones who got away with the good stuff in their view, from their perspective. Sounds a lot like the Psalms, right? David said the same thing. Why do the wicked prosper? But God said that the Purifier, capital P, Purifier, was coming. He said that everything, down to the very words that were being spoken, everything was to be tallied up and lead to either judgment or reward. Their words and their money were showing that they wanted what they wanted, and they wanted it now. But God had a plan that included not just them and their worship, but the entire world to the ends of the earth until the end of time? And he said he was going to send his son, the Lord, at some point in the future. And then and only then would God's glory return to Israel. And when his son Jesus did show up, the majority of the Jews missed him, even calling for his death. And they had Him crucified on a Roman cross. But their perspective was bad then too. He didn't stay dead. They thought, well, we killed Him. Well, no, He didn't. Well, He did. But He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and showed Himself alive to over, over 500 people. Now, that sounds like a lot of people. But 500 in a nation? its not a lot of people. So their perspective at that time was off too. And then Jesus ascended after He showed Himself alive to about five hundred people. He ascended into heaven where even today He intercedes for His people. And this is the most glorifying thing that could have been done for what God had proposed and what God was doing. And that's all that Jesus was concerned with. It says He endured the cross despising the shame for the joy that was set before Him. It's a different perspective, isn't it? I'll endure now and I'll hate what I'm going through, but I'll do it for the joy that's up there somewhere. That's how Jesus operated. Why? For the glory of God. What you are going through right now, and listen, it, it makes me tremble a little to say this because I don't know exactly what you're going through, but what you are going through right now is for the glory of God. Is that your perspective? Am I saying it's not hard? No. Am I saying that I completely understand? No, I don't. I do not. But if my perspective is only that I want my suffering alleviated in the moment because it's just too hard, my perspective is bad. So what do we do with that? We take it to God. And we say, God, I can't see clearly. I am in the valley of the shadow of death. And I want... Your glory more than anything else, but this feels like too much. And what does the scripture say to us? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We preach the gospel to ourselves and we remind ourselves that God is with us in the midst of this. And what He is doing, He is doing for His glory, and that's all I want. It's all Jesus wanted. You've wearied me with your words. You've spoken harshly against me. Why? Because your perspective's wrong. You've quit giving to the church. It's not important anymore. Why? Because your perspective's off. I can't afford to give this week. They are coming to cut off my electricity. Careful with your words, careful with your money. And be so much more careful with your perspective of what's going on in the midst of it. Are you simply concerned with the glory of God in the midst of your situation? Because if you are, you will see that He is with you and His rod and His staff will comfort you. Jesus said He was there. He was in the moment, going through whatever He went through, including the cross, including death, to glorify the Father. And this should be our goal too. Do we have our eyes set on that? Do we have eyes to see that? Or are we only asking God to bless us here and bless us now with what we want when we want it? Are we focused on eternity and doing our deeds, saying our words, using our money and such, looking for a reward in heaven? Please try Him! I dare you! Try Him! Give your guts out. Bite your tongue when you want to say those words and take it as a prayer to God. I dare you. Try Him. And see if He won't open the very windows of heaven and change your perspective to, I want what's there more than I want what's here. Are we focused on eternity and doing our deeds, saying our words, using our money and such, looking for a reward in heaven? We'll finish with Galatians 6, 7 through 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Your speech, your spending, your specs. How are those... The good news is this. Jesus stands and says, grace, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. If you are a believer this morning, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you don't know Jesus this morning, run to Him because the King is coming back in all of His glory and He will judge the unrighteous and the wicked and He will cast them into hell forever where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. You need to confess your sin to him. Ask for forgiveness that comes through the death, through his body, through his blood, through his resurrection, through his ascension. Put your faith in him. Run to him and live for his glory and not your own. Let's pray. God, you change not, therefore we are not consumed. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your perfect plan that will one day recreate in us and through us who know you and love you a perfect image of Jesus in the purified silver of our lives. Jesus, refine us, purify us for your glory. And may our speech and our spending and our perspective be right and godly based on your word your faithfulness. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and receive a benediction as we close. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us please, if you can.